The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. So Colossians chapter 1 in your Bibles today. Colossians chapter 1. This is the furthest east that we've preached out of God's Word here at Life Journey Church, but that's okay. Because in the almost two years that I've served here as an elder, I've learned, I had to make sure I was holding two fingers, I've learned two truths about God's Word. Number one, no sermon series really ever ends because all of Scripture is God's Word, and therefore it's just a matter of where we're going to be taking a peek into it. And then the second truth that I've learned is that it doesn't really matter where you go, where you start, or where you finish. Ultimately, it's all going to wind up pointing back to Christ anyhow. But we are excited to begin a new sermon series. We're going to jump right in, and we'll see whether or not I need to preach an entire sermon this morning, or if we're going to get out and go to the lake early. Verse 1. Don't get your hopes up. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Okay. That didn't seem to impress too many of you, so let's do some work this morning. All right, so last week we wrapped up a four-week sermon series looking at the roots and the fruits in the foundation of the early first century church. And we saw some pretty amazing things. We saw the Holy Spirit falling on this group of disciples. We saw them spilling out into the streets, speaking languages that they had never previously learned so that they could glorify God in the native tongues of all the visitors that were in Jerusalem celebrating Passover, the festival of weeks, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We found the first century church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to praying, to serving one another, to doing life together. We saw Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, deliver a message that just like that resulted in the salvation of 3,000 people, the mass conversion of thousands of Jews. We saw really uh, a lot of awesome things that were happening in those early years. But one of the things that we didn't see, one of the things that we won't find is the tagline anywhere in the life of the early church that says, and they all lived happily ever after. Now, is there a happy ending for God's children, for believers, for followers of Christ? Absolutely. But it's not necessarily in this life. See, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached a message that resulted in the mass conversion of thousands of people. But kingdom work wasn't always that awesome. Opposition from the religious elite soon intensified, and the apostles and disciples found themselves persecuted, scattered, run out of town, beat, cursed. They weren't the popular people. And then one day, a Jesus follower named Stephen was arrested, and he was brought before the high priest and the council of the Sanhedrin on charges of blasphemy because he was a Christ follower. He was affirming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Chosen One of God. And so the high priest looks at Stephen and he says, are, are these things true, what my men are telling me? Or are you really saying these things? And what that did was that gave Stephen the opportunity in front of the high priest, in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the council of 70-some elders, the wisest of the wise. He was in front of scores of Pharisees. Just this huge, massive crowd was gathered around watching this. And so Stephen then proceeded to open his mouth and preach the only message that he ever preached in his life. And he spent... I don't know how many minutes just laying out the gospel of Christ, starting with Abraham, our father. You know, get this entire crowd of people on common ground, and he walks them through Abraham, and this is how he wraps his message up. He says, you stiff-necked people, talking to the high priest, to the Sanhedrin, to the Pharisees, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, that's a seeker sensitive. Let's win them over to Jesus' message. See, at the conclusion of his speech, unlike Peter, Stephen didn't see mass revival. He saw mass anger. But he also saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he saw the glory of God. And looking into the heavens, Stephen said, Behold, I see the Son of Man. And the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And all this did was make the crowd even more angry. It fueled the outrage of the Jewish leaders, and they began to scream and actually block their ears. They hated this message so much, and they rushed him out of the city, and they picked up rocks and began to throw them at Stephen over and over. And they looked for bigger rocks. They looked for a way to throw them harder and faster and hurt him even more until one bright young man realized, hey guys, you, you can kill him a lot faster if you give me your coats. Let me hold your jacket. You can throw that rock a little harder. You can pick him up a little quicker. Just give me your jackets. I'll hold on to them. You can kill him so much better if you let me watch your jackets. And so they did. They took their outer garments off. They gave them to this young man named Saul. And they proceeded to murder this follower of Christ named Stephen, while Jesus watched from above. You see, not everybody embraced the ideology of the early Christians, especially not this young man named Saul of Tarsus. See, Saul was a brilliant man, a couple of years older than Jesus. He was a Roman by birth, but he was also a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was born in the city of Tarsus, a multicultural trade center located right on the side of the Mediterranean Sea. And in Saul's day, the city ran about 250,000 people strong, which in that day was a large city. And it was the center of trade, but it was also a fairly advanced, intelligent community. In fact, uh, one of the philosophers of the day said that even Tarsus surpassed Athens and Alexandria in terms of the intellect that was there, the things that were being taught, the schools that were being promoted. Stoicism was the philosophical flavor of the day, but, you know, Phariseeism was pretty big too, and... Saul was a Jew, and he was raised as a Pharisee. And he grew up learning from the best. His teacher was Gamaliel, who was the grandson of the famous uh, Hillel, who founded the house of Hillel School. And so he's learning at the feet of the best. And in our context, it's probably a little difficult to understand and appreciate the work that the Pharisees put into learning God's Word. See, the Pharisees were the largest subdivision of Judaism, and they began to memorize the Torah. The Pharisees that were going through the school, they began to memorize the Torah, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the writings of Moses from the age of five. The Jewish philosopher Philo said this. He said that all men are eager to preserve their own customs and laws, which you know, we would agree with, and the Jewish nation above all others, for looking upon their laws as oracles directly given to them by God himself, and having been instructed in this doctrine from their very earliest infancy, they bear in their souls the images of the commandments contained in these laws as sacred. And so the Pharisees were renowned for their ability to incorporate the word of God from the earliest age conceivable. From the time they were five to the time they were 12, the ones that were in school memorized the Torah. The really bright ones, by the time they were 18, had memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. And I would dare say there's some, uh, there's some of us here that have never even read through the Old Testament, much less had it memorized. And Saul was one of these young men. Along the way, he would learn Hebrew in addition to his, to his native Greek, but he also would have learned Aramaic. And very strongly, there's a possibility that he learned Latin as well. And so Saul is receiving this wonderful education. 
In addition to the Torah, to the customs, traditions of Judaism, he would also learn the arts and sciences of the day. He would learn the Roman law. He would learn the philosophies, the customs of the day. In short, Saul received a better education than any of us. A brilliant, brilliant mind. He was also religiously devout. In his own words, there was no visible evidence that he was actually a sinner. He said, he said, concerning the law, I was righteous. You can't look at me and pinpoint sin. I play this game better than anyone. I am great. See, he lived as though his standing with God was determined by his performance for God, which I think is something that some of us still struggle with. And Saul hated Christianity, and he should have. It stood contrary to everything that he has spent his entire life working towards. The message of Jesus was grace and forgiveness apart from the law. Jesus taught it was impossible to keep the law, that the law pointed us to the need for a Savior, for a Messiah. See, according to Jesus, there was a deeper problem, an underlying sin issue. But not for Saul. No, sir. He knew the law. He kept the law. He had a first-class education. He knew the entirety of the Old Testament. And he would sooner rot in Hades than let this rebel from this podunk town of Nazareth show up and challenge his religion. And so he hated Christ. He hated the message of Christianity. And there he is in Jerusalem, on site for the illegal stoning of Stephen. That's the ironic part. The Jews had no authority to execute anyone. But the Roman government, as long as it didn't create a riot, actually turned their eye on it. But still, the murder of Stephen was illegal. Some commentators even believe that Saul was the instigator. That his prominence among his peers was so great that all he had to do was make the suggestion, offer to hold the jackets, and then sit back and grin while they murdered this young man. A firestorm began that day in the church and persecution raged. In Acts chapter 8, we find Saul ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging men and women out and throwing them into prison. Can you picture that? See, by this time, the church was underground because they knew that any public profession of faith, any public worship gathering was just an easy target for persecution. And so they would gather as a family, maybe multiple families, gathering in a home over candlelight, and maybe they were lucky and fortunate enough to have a piece of God's Word with them, but more often than not, they simply would have recited from memory the oral tradition passed down from Torah, from the first five books of Scripture. And they would be looking for the Jesus connection, and they would be realizing, okay, this points to Christ, this points to Christ, they'd be worshiping together, and then BAM! There's Saul breaking your door down, grabbing you by your hair, and you're, you're being dragged out, and you're looking at your wife, or you're looking at your husband, you're looking at your children being dragged out the same way. And all you can do is scream and rage at the injustice of all of it and cry out to God for mercy to just please spare my children. And then you would be thrown into prison, or beat, or murdered. That was Christian life in the first century. That was the world that Saul lived in. In Acts chapter 9, we find Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Interesting phrase there, breathing threats and murder. It meant that his entire life was consumed with crushing this movement, these followers of the way, these little Jesuses. He wanted them gone. And as we follow his life, we find Saul traveling to a town called Damascus, which was about 130 miles northeast of Jerusalem. But he wasn't taking a vacation. He wasn't giving the church a break. Now see, what Saul had done was Saul had gone to the high priest. 
and said, please, can I have legal written documentation that gives me permission to travel some week into Damascus, check out the synagogues in the area, and if I find any Christians, can I legally bind them and bring them back so that we can kill them or put them in prison? And the high priest granted him this authority, gave him this permission. So now Saul is on his way to Damascus so that he can continue stamping out this movement that just inexplicably continued to spread like wildfire. History shows that there were greater persecutors of the Christian church than Saul, but I would submit to you that there was none that did so with as much religious zeal as Saul, who thought that everything he was doing was in worship of God. He thought that his actions were a fulfillment of the law, that he was protecting God's holy name by crushing these rebels, these heretics, these blasphemers, these misfits belonging to the way of Jesus. As he made his way to Damascus to round up the next batch of easy targets at midday when the sun was at its brightest, Scripture tells us that this bright light, this brilliant light shone from heaven and knocked Saul to the ground. And a voice from heaven called out, Saul, Saul. Now there's a few other times in Scripture where Jesus calls somebody by their name twice. Several other times. And each time it marks that something momentous is about to happen. That something huge is about to take place or some revelation is going to be given. That's the way that Jesus called out to Abraham from the burning bush. Abraham. Abraham. Sorry, that's Moses. We'll get to Moses in a second. He called out to Abraham twice and then he made covenantal promises with Abraham. And then he called Moses. I'm so glad I caught that. I would have felt really stupid at the end of the day. He called out to Moses from the burning bush and said, Moses, Moses. And then he employed Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. He called Peter's name twice. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan wants you. Satan wants to destroy you, but I'm not going to let him. You will fail, Simon. You will fall but I'm not going to let you be crushed. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus called Martha this way. He said, Martha, Martha, focus on me. Fix your attention on me. Choose me. I'm the greater good. Don't get so wrapped up in serving me that you forget who I am. And so now Jesus, with that same inexhaustible, one-way, undeserved love, calls out from heaven and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting the people that worship? He says, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds with, who are you, Lord? (laughs) I think he answered his own question. Because see, when you have an encounter with Christ, you know it immediately. And the voice from heaven told Saul, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but go into the city and you'll be told what you are to do. And so Saul did wordlessly, obedient. And for the next three days, Saul is blind and he doesn't eat or drink anything. Can you imagine what occupied his mind for those three days? As he's sitting there grappling with the fact that everything that he thought was real is not. Can you imagine what went through his mind as he realized the truth that the very Christ whom he persecuted was indeed his Messiah? That the men, the women, the children that had been imprisoned or killed were Jesus' people. They were God's children. And he was responsible for so much of it. Can you imagine what's going through his mind? The fabric of his reality was shredded and he had to come to terms with the truth that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That apart from Christ, salvation was impossible. That it wasn't about rule keeping. It wasn't about religion following. It was about a person. 
named Jesus, who was risen. Shortly thereafter, Saul received the Holy Spirit, was converted, was baptized, eventually made it into the synagogues of Damascus, but he didn't go in to arrest people. He went in to argue that Jesus was the Messiah. Day after day after day, you couldn't shut him up. And eventually he began to go less and less by his Hebrew name Saul and more by his Roman name Paul. What had once been the loudest voice of opposition against Christianity was now its greatest champion. And because of that, we see in Acts 9 that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church in Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go out on their first missionary trip. When they began this trip, it seems like Barnabas was the leader and Paul was the disciple, Lee, the follower. By the end of this trip, Paul was listed first. It was Paul and Barnabas. He assumed leadership. He took a second missionary journey, Paul did. He traveled with Silas, Timothy, and Luke. And on his third journey, Paul was actually able to send teams ahead of him to preach in the cities that he was traveling to. So as the years go by, his position within the church increases to greater and greater degrees of leadership. And so finally, he becomes the greatest church planner that Christian history has ever known. Over the course of his life, Paul traveled over 10,000 miles to spread the gospel of Jesus strategically through city centers. And it wasn't without a cost. In Paul's own words, he was beat countless times. How many times do you have to be beaten before you know how many times it was that you, you can't you know, keep track of it anymore? See, I can tell you right now, every fight that I've ever been in, I'd also be quick to tell you I won them all, I uh, promise. But he says he was beaten countless times. Five different times he received a flogging of 39 lashes. And if it's with a cat of nine tails, that's nine times 39 times. I don't want to know what his back looked like. Three other times he was beaten with rods. He was pummeled with stones. Shipwrecked three times. He said he had many a sleepless night and was in constant danger from rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, false Christians, nature, weather. His entire life was spent in the midst of danger. He was a man on a mission to spread the fame of the one whom he at once hated. And if you wonder why I have such a high view of the grace of God and salvation, you don't need to look any further than Paul. Because Paul's the one that said there are none that seek God. And Paul would say that he wasn't seeking, he wasn't seeking God. He wasn't seeking Jesus. But Jesus was seeking him. The last thing on his mind that day on the road to Damascus was trusting Christ as Savior. But even as he's writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae, he's been in prison now following decades of missionary work. God used Paul to write more than half the books in the New Testament. He used Paul to plant multiple churches to develop countless elders. And so maybe you can imagine now as an older man well in his 60s, what's going through Paul's mind as he writes down or perhaps has Timothy write down for him these words? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, See, the word apostle means one who was sent out, specifically one who was sent out by Christ on a mission for Christ. And even as he begins this letter, he pays homage to the grace of God that sought him out. <clears throat> so let's pause here for a second, because I want to tap into something that I think that most of us can relate to. And that's the idea of not feeling good enough. 
well, I'm, I'm not good enough to come to Christ. I've done too much. Or, or I'm not good enough to, to go to church consistently because I've, just, I've got too much baggage. Or I'm not good enough to plan a church. I'm not good enough to plug into leadership of the church. I'm not good enough to serve on a team. I'm not good enough to do... We can relate to that, right? Some of us. Because we feel like we've just not done good enough or maybe we've done too much wrong. And you know what? You're right. Alone, you're not good enough. But in Christ, you have been equipped with absolutely everything you could possibly need. Let me ask you this. If Jesus was looking for qualified men to lead his church, would he have called Paul? If Jesus was looking for someone that was worthy of his salvation before actually saving them, would he have chosen Paul? Absolutely not. See, here's a nugget that might rattle your theology. In Galatians, Paul says that he was set apart before he was even born. Set apart for what? In his words, to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. And so Paul said before he was even born, God had marked him, had set him apart, and planned to use him. You're awesome. Which means his first class education, the sovereignty of God. Being a religiously devout Pharisee, also God's sovereign plan. Hating Jesus, God's sovereign plan. Standing there, holding his arms out, gathering the jackets of these people that are throwing rocks at this Christ follower. God's sovereign plan. Which meant that even as Jesus was standing and staring down at Stephen being murdered for his faith, he was also in love watching Saul, whom he knew he was going to save. All of it, God's sovereign plan. So you can't sit there and say that you're not usable by God. You can't sit there and say, well, I've done too much, or I've not done enough, or I've not done enough good things. Until you have made it your life's work to crush out the church and murder Christians, then Paul has the trump card on every one of us who think that we're not good enough, that we're not possibly lovable. There's no limit to what God would do to a man, woman, or child who wants nothing more but to press into Christ. And there is no such thing as a person that's done too much to be loved by God. I can't talk this morning. Because Paul clearly shows us that even the worst of us is loved by God. I like Paul. Most scholars agree that the letter that Paul is writing, this letter to the Colossians, was one of Paul's prison epistles written early in the 80s-60s as he is awaiting trial in Rome where eventually he'll be executed for being a Christ follower. How's that for irony? See, God doesn't promise any of us an easy life, but he does promise us a life that's worth living. So he's writing this letter to the Christians in Colossae, Colossae, Colossae. Depends on your level of education. And that was located in present-day Turkey, which was about 120 miles east of Ephesus. And as much as we can put the pieces together, Paul has never even been to this church. It seems that the church in Colossae was founded by a young man named Epaphras, who himself was a convert beneath Paul's teaching as Paul was in Ephesus. Just a handful of years after founding this church, Epaphras finds his church under attack from within. There's all sorts of strange teaching uh, coming up. It's loosely coined the Colossian heresy, but really we're not, we're not exactly sure what it was that was being taught. There were some elements of, uh, of Judaism. 
there were some parts of the law of Moses, but there were also some, some odd parts that may have been under the influence of the early days of uh, Gnosticism because there was an emphasis on the special, the secret knowledge. There was a little bit of uh, asceticism wrapped into it. There was angel worship. It was just this weird blend of everything. It was a blend of Christianity, Judaism, Greek paganism. But here's what made this heresy so destructive. None of it actually denounced the reality of Christ as Lord and Savior. They just wanted to say that that wasn't enough, that Jesus was just a lesser God, that he wasn't the God. And so when Epaphras saw the danger lurking in his church, he traveled some 1,200 miles to Rome. Imagine how long that takes. I can promise you he didn't fly. 1,200 miles he goes to Rome so that he can talk to Paul, minister to Paul while he's there, as Timothy is, and get some insight from Paul about what to do with this church. And in response to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this letter, and he writes down Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in the Greek, it's brothers and sisters, in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. See, Paul was famous for beginning almost, if not all of his letters, with the words, grace to you. Grace to you. Even in the middle of the mess that this church is in, even in the prolific heresy that's being expounded upon, even in the mixture of, of law and grace and gospel and asceticism and worship of God and worship of... In the middle of all of this, Paul says, grace to you, you saints. See, I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that Paul starts that way because he's high on grace, though undoubtedly Paul was high on grace. But here's the thing. Paul used his apostolic authority to correct issues within the church. Sometimes they were minor, sometimes they were major. More often than not, it was gospel-centered, either about the gospel or about what life in Christ looked like. So in his letters, Paul simply starts out by saying, look, it's me, Paul, an apostle, not by my choice, by by God's choice. Paul says, I know we have to deal with some issues. I'm writing to you because we have to deal with some issues. But before we get to any of that, I need you to know one thing, and that's that you are saints. Hagios. Set apart, separated, sanctified. Paul wants to be sure that his readers realize that their identity is grounded in Christ before he goes forward with any corrective action. So he reminds them, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Despite these issues, grace. Paul says there's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no punishment. There's no lightning bolts of wrath coming from the sky. Grace to you and peace from God. And so we're going to spend the next few months walking through this letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And we're going to see some things that might be applicable to us uh, on the surface, some things that aren't quite so easily related. But central to all of this is whether or not the Colossians' hope was resting in Christ alone or if they were going to augment that with a form of of angel worship, or if they were going to abstain from various things, if they were going to follow these rules in order to collectively become the church of Christ. But really, it was all central as to whether or not the Colossians' hope was resting in Christ alone. And so I have two questions for us this morning as we begin to wrap things up. The first is this. Are you in Christ? See, Paul writes this letters to the brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Are you in Christ? So you've really got three options this morning as you wrestle with the question. Option number one would be, well, no, I, I'm not in Christ, and it's okay because I think that I can trust my own self to get me through this life and the next. 
I don't need Jesus. He's cool and all, but I don't need him because that's for other people. That's not for me. That's, that's option one. You can continue to rely on yourself for your salvation to get you through this life and the next, and we'll see how well that works for you. Or there's option two. Maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I've not really come to the point where I trust Christ with my life, but I just don't, I don't think I'm good enough. I don't know that he would have me because I've done this and I've done this and I've done... Well, do I need to remind you again about Paul and what he did? In the same grace that was offered to Paul, the same love with which Christ held out his arms for Paul, the same way in which Christ died for Paul, he has died for any of us who are willing to say, I I can't save myself, I will trust Christ. So the second option for you is I want to, but I'm scared to, and I pray that, that you actually take the third option, which is simply placing your faith in Christ. If you don't know what that means or what that practically looks like in a little bit, Walt and I are going to be here at the front, and we'd love to sit with you, pray with you, talk with you, show you how you can know from God's Word that you have been saved. So my first question was, are you in Christ? My second question as our band gets up and prepares to lead us in a couple of worship songs is this. For those of you that are in Christ, for those of you that are Christ followers that have placed your trust in Him, my question for you is this. Are you ready for the gospel to impact absolutely every area of your life? See, too many of us leave Jesus here at Western Admiral High School when we walk out of these doors on Sunday morning. And we don't really think much about him during the week. And when we come back, he's right where we left him. And that's, that's kind of how we do life. Church on Sunday, me the rest of the week. And, oh my goodness, we're missing out on so much if that's our mindset. The Christian life is so much more than that. It's life. It's life. Would you pray this morning that God would continue to mold the way that you think about Jesus and in turn transform the way that you act? Our journey marker, our takeaway from this introductory message to Colossians, to the Christians in Colossae, simply this. There is no separation between our life in Christ and the gospel. Jesus is the source of our life. He purchased it on His cross. He has given His life to us so that we in turn for the rest of the days that God has given us on this earth can live in the fullness of that life. We're going to watch Paul tackle head on some of the issues that was... That was uh, prevalent within the church in Colossae. We're going to watch as he covers some of the baggage that even now we still drag into this relationship that we have with Christ. Are you willing to pray this morning that as we walk through Colossians over the next few months, that God would open your eyes and open your heart, number one, to the reality of who you are in Christ, and number two, what that can look like for each of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for Paul for the awesomeness of his, well, I don't want to say awesomeness. Lord, I can't imagine what was going through his mind when he realized that everything that he had spent his life working towards was a lie. But Father, I love Paul because in his conversion, your sovereignty is clearly displayed. The truth that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us couldn't be any more clearly displayed than through the life of Paul. John says that we love you because you first loved us. Could not be more clearly displayed than through the life of Paul. A young man who had nothing on his mind but the persecution of your people. The self-righteousness of his day. In his mind, he was good. He was yours. He was chosen. 
But Father, you chose to reveal to him the emptiness of his religiosity. And even now in this building, Lord, there are some that still think that they can be good enough. That they don't really need Christ in order to procure your favor. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning in the same way that you opened Saul's. Lord, that the scales would fall away. That you would reveal the wonderfulness and the beauty of your Son. So that those here this morning who have not yet trusted him as Savior would see him and cling to Him as their only hope of salvation. And Father, for Your people here this morning that are still wrapped up in baggage, that are still wrapped up in some form of religiosity or selfishness or stubbornness, whatever it is that we're wrestling with, Lord, the things that make us feel unworthy, the things that make us feel shame and guilt, Lord, I pray that You realize that in Christ there's no condemnation. But Father, there are some things that we may be dragging into this relationship that is preventing us from living out the life of Christ that's been given to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom, give us discernment. Father, help us to realize that, that these issues that Paul is addressing to the church in Colossae, they had no bearing on your relationship to them. There was nothing but grace and love from you. They were saints. They were separated. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, we're thankful that despite our stubbornness and inability to live perfectly, that in our inner flesh, in our inner man, we are perfect and holy, eternally united to Christ, that that can't be jeopardized. That's good news. So, Father, continue to work through us and among us. We thank you for that. In Christ, let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.